You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. A thrill-laden episode? Just as I started saying that, I was like, wait, wait how's this going to go? I ladled like? thrills directly on this episode. <laughs> thrill-laden episode of Digital Noise featuring me, Chris. And this week, my co-host is Mr. John Golson, or should I say, the features SNL's John Golson. Uh, well, <laughs> you are too kind. We he can, says that because I just got out of a sketch comedy writing class. A sketch comedy writing Three. Yes. So you're like already like already. way up there. Uh, yeah. Well, this in this round we learn how to produce our own show for the stage. So. This this is pretty much Austin's second city, is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> or footlights. That's what it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, we have a lot of uh, movies to talk about of a wide variety of types. Usually, there's more, but it's easier to have a go. Oh, well, there's at least a three or four stretch. I can say these are kind of like in a theme. Mm-hmm. Not so much this week. They're all over the goddamn yeah, place. Yeah, they are. Uh, and as well, I'm injecting into the middle of this at one point a, a uh, review for one I was supposed to do with Marco last show, and we forgot. And he was like, you're not going to make somebody else watch this fucking movie, are you? I was like, no, we'll just record a review for it, and I'll slip it in, and you'll see what that is. Uh, it's one of the ones you were like, of those retro uh, Blu-rays, you were like, you almost took. Oh. Yeah. But we'll get to that. Uh, but first off, our sponsor, of course, is Circle Brewery, which you can... Go to their brew pub if you live in Austin, which they have a lot of great seasonal taps uh, and really friendly people, really cool little bar uh, attached right to the the brewery itself. Or you can pick up their beers in your local convenience store, in your local uh, beer specialty shop, grocery store. They have a lot of different beers available. I've discovered through having their beers for a couple months now and giving them out to uh, our crew during podcasts, the two most popular by far, their uh, black IPA, their tuxedo IPA. People are always like, oh my God, this is so good. And they're, of course, they're my favorite, their Circle Blur, which is their Hefeweizen. But I've never had anybody say, have one of their beers and go, yeah, it's just okay. They're always like, wow, this is really good. <laughs> so that's good. And you should find out for yourself and check out Circle Brewery. Also, please. Please think about becoming a subscriber. That's how this site gets paid for. I'm in the middle this week of spending money on fixing a bunch of stuff on the site that's needed to be fixed for a long time, including finally going with a mobile responsive theme. So the site's going to have a whole different look shortly and hopefully will not be completely broken. Either way, uh, doing that, fixing security certificates, dealing with people from the outside, helping these things cost money, and we need your money to keep the site going. You can do that by becoming a subscriber at four different levels that also come with their own bonus things as well. Please, if you enjoy our site at all, think about it. $2 a month? Come on. You can put that on your... To come out of your bank account, you would never even notice it. $5 a month? Wouldn't notice that either. I mean, come on. You can put it... Look at your budget and say, what can I afford and then forget about? There you go. Keep listening to Digital Noise. Keep listening to one of us. And don't forget, Digital Noise also has... If you're still listening to this on the general iTunes, everything at one of us... We actually have our own Digital Noise iTunes page, uh, and we're on Spotify as well, amongst other things. And it really helps if you get onto those sites, subscribe through them, and leave us a review. It really does make a difference, so think about doing that as well. Well, with all that being said, let's get into the reviews, and we're going to start off with a documentary I've been meaning to watch for a while. I had access to this for like the last two months, and I didn't really get a chance to for... 
Oscar nomination season when it was initially sent to me, but then they sent it again for, for DVD, and I was like, oh, good. So now I have an excuse to watch this movie I've heard so many nice things about, which is Love, Gilda, a uh, American-Canadian documentary about the legendary female comedian Gilda Radner. Uh, now, there's no question... That like so many documentaries about people I've seen lately in entertainment, this is wholly on the side of we have nothing but glowing things to say. Mm-hmm. But that being said, unlike some of those others, I don't think I've ever actually heard any bad stories about Gilda Radner on any level. I don't think anyone did have a bad word to no, say about I, her. I think they try to get into it a little bit. They, 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 you know, like anybody. Yeah, any human, they're going to have their foibles, and they get into a little bit of her foibles. But when you're, when the worst thing about you is that you have a strong desire to be loved, yeah. <laughs> that's not really that bad. Well, you're you know? you're a comedian. That yeah. kind of comes with the territory, right? Um, yeah, Gilda Radner was definitely. She's one of the founding members of Saturday Night Live. Uh, she was in Second City before that. Worked on Harvard Lampoon. She is one of the people who I would call is one of the founders of just American comedy as we know it today. And um, everybody seemed to get along with her. She also a lot of the other most famous people from that scene. She also dated at one point or another, but there didn't seem like there was any bad feelings <laughs> even yeah. after that. So she, I, I figure she's probably okay. And this story. Although, um, I feel like at points it skips over stuff I would have liked to have seen more of. Like, I would have loved to have seen a lot more of the, that I know exists early footage stuff from, like, Second City and things. Some, mm-hmm. some of those really early projects. But it gets past that relatively quickly. Even Saturday Night Live, it, it strangely kind of fast-forwards past it a goes, bit. It goes beat by beat. It kind of addresses individual... Uh, like the inspiration or creation of individual characters, mm-hmm. and then just it 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 has a lot of it has a lot of ground to cover. So it just kind of like it hits everything that you would sort of want it to hit. But there's times where you almost wish that you could, uh, you know, Starship Troopers. Would you like to know more? There, it almost there's almost right. times where it's like, wait, can we divert from this? Can we get a tangent on on this moment in her life? Can we learn more? Dig deeper. But it, because it's trying to cover such a such a big life in such a small period of time, if there's any if there's anything quote unquote wrong with the film, it's that it, it is very much like and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens. And there's like I think it's like thirty three minutes or thirty seven. Let me see here. Uh, thirty seven minutes of additional interview footage with people who they did interview with the film, which is the sort of thing you always hope that they're going to throw onto this. If anything, there's a bit of a disappointment. They didn't really get interviews with a lot of people that you're kind of shocked wouldn't want to step forward and have be interviewed for this. A lot of her cast back in the the first season of Saturday Night Live and people like that, you're like, yeah, they didn't even talk to. I was like, they can't have gone to them and said, hey, do you want to? I mean, come on. They had to have asked, right? I mean, yeah. why would they say no? I don't know. Maybe somebody does have something bad to say about Gilda. Who knows? But um, there are some very nice interviews with people she did know and work with, like uh, Martin Short, Lauren Michaels, uh, Paul Schaefer, who I believe she also dated for a while as one of the people she had a relationship with, uh, members of her family, and then, of course, a lot of people who were found themselves really heavily influenced by her in their career, a- Amy Poehler, Bill Hader, Melissa McCarthy. And there's definitely, if, if uh, there's a theme in here besides Gilda Radner's life, it's how strongly she was the one who opened the door for female comedians in America. Yeah. I think part of it, too, it works to help keep a legacy alive, because unlike some of her Saturday Night Live counterparts, um, there she doesn't have a very strong body of work in film. No. 
so there's not Hardly necessarily any. like movies that people would return to because a lot of the films she did weren't very well received anyway. So it's hard to go like, oh, Haunted Honeymoon is one of my favorites. You know, you've got to watch it. So there's not that word of mouth type thing that gets passed down right. generationally. But she was a, a sensation in her time on Saturday Night Live, yeah. and afterwards she had a sold a series of sold out Broadway show, one woman shows that were a very big deal at the time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was like she didn't really do movies until uh, she married Gene Wilder, and then Gene Wilder famously had a slew of not really great movies, which were the ones that they did together, sadly. Yeah. But um, hey, Stir Crazy's still good. She's not in it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. Uh, but uh, anyway, let's move on to her next film, uh, uh, home release, and that is... Who's Harry Crumb? Now, you actually seemed, you lit up when I handed this to you, and, and then you kind of lit down. You were like, oh, I, do I want to see that? Yeah. Uh, because I kind of suspected it was bad. I saw it when it was released theatrically. Right. Me and, and a friend. 1989. Saw it. I can remember exactly. We saw it at Baybrook Mall. It was just one of those things like, let's go to the movies. Okay, what's playing? Who's Harry Crumb? Okay, we'll go see that. So we saw it at Baybrook Mall in Clear Lake, Texas, uh-huh. and uh, you know thought it was okay when I was not quite a kid, not quite a teenager. I'm, I, I don't know when did it come out? Ninety? Eighty nine? Yeah. So it would have been fourteen. Yeah. Um, you know, and at fourteen, it it was completely satisfying. <laughs> so when I saw it there, I was like, oh, I remember going. I remember, I remember that day. What a nice day, and the happy feelings that came with seeing who's Harry Crumb. Watching it now. Um, <laughs> here we go. Here it's it goes. It's not a very good movie. No. It's very obvious that Candy is trying to create his own. I don't think I realized it at the time. I didn't have any context. He's definitely trying to create his own, like, Inspector Clouseau yes. type character for which to hang gags from. Which is. But Candy's deal, I don't think I'm, that this movie. This is the same character, though, that he plays in every movie. It just in this one, he's playing one who's a detective. It's the lovable but bumbling guy that somehow has himself in a position well, that's not living out of a refrigerator box. There's a lot more of what Chris Farley used to call fat guy fall down go boom mm-hmm. movies. <laughs> there's a lot more of that in this than there are in, in Candy's other movies from the 80s. Mm-hmm. So Candy's Candy would return to these characters that were likable but abrasive, like sometimes a little too much. Or he played, like, everyman-type characters, like, uh, in Great Outdoors, where he's just like a dad. Planes, trains, and automobiles. Planes, trains, and automobiles. He is that kind of, like, abrasive character that's still likable. Um, But what he wasn't doing was a lot of, like, I'm fat and I crashed through a wall. And there's a lot of that in Who's Harry Crumb. Yeah. Um, And and a lot of racist humor. He's in brownface so much in this movie. There, yeah, right up early on, he's playing a, a Indian, like from India, and you just, you cringe immediately. You're like, yeah. no, no, John Candy, but it and, was a different time. And he has, so he has the Arab guy, too, because he has yeah. the masseuse, and he has the Indian uh, HVAC right. AC repairman guy. Um, yeah, so he, he gets in brownface a lot, but again, I think it's a Peter Sellers thing. Yeah, I think it's him going... Hey, Peter Sellers is cool. I want that. And then putting it on, it doesn't fit him. Like that Peter Sellers whatever does not fit John Candy's pers- comic persona. Agreed. Um this the basic plot is that he is uh 
the family what, what's the word like he's he's because of his family he's part of a, a, from third, a long line of great detectives yeah he's a third tier uh like franchise of the detective agency and you assume that he must have solved a case at some point in his life but uh he comes out to the main branch of this and ends up getting onto a case where the daughter of this millionaire has been kidnapped um and uh you know it's quickly evident that like all right, so someone uh, got him assigned to this case specifically because they know he's incompetent and they don't want anybody solving this case. Yeah. Uh, spoiler, Jeffrey Jones is in this movie. <laughs> so, Jeffrey Jones, as far as I know, never having actually played a straight-up nice guy hero character, and, well, now he most certainly never will. Yeah. But being having a g- gone to jail for uh, child pornography. But still... um so it's he forms the one thing in this film, film I can say I genuinely liked is that he forms a weird sort of friendship with the other daughter of the millionaire and the sequences where they are together are actually kind of adorable. Uh, I, I I genuinely kind of enjoy those with uh, Shawnee Smith, who you'll know from lots of various TV shows, the Saw series, the Saw the series, yeah. But it, she was like. Look like maybe sixteen here, yeah. And uh, it's it's a cute little relationship of the two of them together uh, as well. The weird and rare role where Annie Potts, rather than playing a mousy lady, is playing a glamorous femme, fa- sexy femme fatale, which is very like, whoa, that's Annie Potts. That's the secretary from Ghostbusters. Yes, the uh, the see through black bra was that image was burned into my fourteen year old brain. I it's, can imagine so. You know, when you're a junior high age and you see that for the first time, it's it's quite exciting. But now in the year 2019, it is not nearly as exciting. <laughs> it's, it, you know, you're not looking up on the internet, Andy Potts, black bra. I tried to, find, <laughs> I'm, maybe I did the day I watched it, but, sure. um, I, I wanted to know what people thought about it now. I didn't want to read old reviews. So I went on letterbox to see like what people thought of it. And it was a real mix of people who, Hated it far worse than I did. Just like, this is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Such a piece of garbage. Or people that were like, four stars, five stars. This is one of the funniest movies I grew up with this movie. Like, this is so great. It's wonderful. It's John Candy's best movie. Uh, you know. It is decidedly not John well, Candy's best movie. Here's, here's the, yeah. <laughs> no, it's not. So you're, 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 you're completely disqualified if you have said that at any point. Yeah. He's like, oh, wait, were you in a coma? No. <laughs> it doesn't... Unless that's the only John Candy movie you've seen, or maybe the only other one you saw was, uh, I don't know, Armed and Dangerous or something. Yeah, if you want a dumb 80s comedy, this certainly fits the bill. It is a very dumb 80s comedy. It's very dumb. Uh, there are a few moments that I like in it. I'm not going to say they're not. And there's some moments that are cringeworthy by today's standards, but overall... This is a movie that I would have been fine with never actually having gotten around to see. and uh, But now I've seen it. And, and it's it in 1080p on high-definition Blu-ray digital disc. Yes, it's part of that Mill Creek ret- retro line with, that looks like a videotape is sliding out of its case with a bunch of fake old-school video store stickers on it, which is cool, uh, but... I, you know, there's a reason I didn't rent this when it originally came out because I had already seen a slew of bad John Candy movies and went, no more. <laughs> yeah, he had a weird, he had a weird post Uncle Buck run where it was like, who's Harry Crumb and Delirious, the soap opera writer movie, mm-hmm. and like Wagons East. Like his last, basically like post Uncle Buck to the time that he passed away, 
was not a good time for John Candy movies. I still never got around to Uncle Buck, and it's one of those films, I wish they had sent that instead, because that's a John Hughes film, and I know a lot of people who still really defend it and say, no, Uncle Buck's great. Just never got around to it. Uncle Buck's fine. I have a bad opinion about it, though, because one time I was floating out on the lake a couple years ago, uh, like like on a party barge, and these really young kids at the barge next to us, and they're like, hey, it's Uncle Buck! And I was like, fuck you! <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm fat. Fuck you. I earned it. Wait till you get to be my age. Oh, Jesus. I'm that guy. <laughs> uh, so let's take. So you yelled at little kids like Uncle Buck would. Oh, they were, they were college students. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't like get off my yard, get yeah. out of my yard with a shotgun or something. Um, all right. So I get to talk to Marco about, I'm going to put this one in here because it was also the last of the retro VHS Blu-rays we're going to talk about. We've talked about a lot of them. What did I miss? Uh, you missed Hard Bodies. And here is me and Marco discussing this 80s um, softcore <laughs> titty comedy classic. So this is my fault. I totally forgot to put this on the list. I screwed up from when Marco was on the last Digital Noise. Uh, so we are throwing in real quick this extra little bonus for one of those <laughs> retro 80s movies that came out from Mill Creek Entertainment with the weird video cassette case. And that is... Uh, I one of those films. I know this cover by heart because yes. it came out in 1984, and so around 1985 or so, it was in every video store in the world, which I lived half my life in at that point. And it was one of those movies you always saw on the shelf. And it didn't matter where you lived. I bet you in like in in Lebanon, they probably had yeah. hard bodies on the shelf in videotape stores. But uh, which I is a shame because I'm sure a lot of the nuances of the comedy were lost in translation. <laughs> but. Um, I, I never actually saw it before now, but I was like, fuck it. They sent it to me with this stack. It's one of those, I kind of feel like almost like a, a duty bound to finally watch this fucking thing. I remember seeing that in the old clamshell case on the shelf at every video store yeah, in the I'm world. Saying, yeah. And always feeling a little bit dirty, a little furtive looking yeah, as you walk by I mean, because you knew you were going to ask for it. And you always thought, oh, Surely this had – you have to understand, this is the cover, the classic kind of, you know, woman torso because dudes apparently don't like women from the neck up or <laughs> the crotch down. Uh, it's just that tight framing with the title Hard Bodies in what I assume, which, God, I hope it's that some kind of suntan yeah. lotion, some kind of white substance, she has spelled the title Hard I Bodies think on to, It's a double entendre. I, it's I, very clever. This film doesn't deal in double entendres. Single entendres is all it can manage. Okay, so all that being said, uh, I've seen, I saw a lot of these movies growing up because they'd be on HBO, and back then you just watched whatever was on. You know, I mean, Hot Dog the movie, yeah, yeah. Porky's. What have you? Um, this was obviously not at a Porky's level, which was considered to be kind of God. There was a high bar for this type of movies, and it was Porky's. Holy shit! Yeah, or maybe Mischief. You remember that one? Oh, barely. Um, but this particular one. Look, kids, the internet didn't exist. You have no idea how fucking hard it was to look at boobies if you were a 10-year-old in the 80s. If you owned your own copy of this, there were tracking marks all over it from the moments where you paused it so you could rub one out. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's probably the moment where it just kind of like started to get disintegrate a little bit because somebody hit pause way too many times. Okay, so the story on this this version of this, which is, by the way, once again, like all Mill Creek's retro VHS releases, bare bones. It's just the movie. It's nothing else. Uh, this guy named Scotty Palmer, who is a complete um, 
In any other of these movies, he would be the villain. Am I wrong? Yeah, no. He's like the super blonde, fratty as fuck guy who hangs out on the beach all day and 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 is playing is the. What but is he's it? charming. He's playing the game. He's playing the game. Yeah. You know, if they were making this movie now, well, actually, if they were making this movie twenty years ago. Matthew McConaughey would be the lead. He'd just be that yeah. guy on the beach, man, who never figured out how to button up all of his shirts. He's just kind of always buff and tan and ready to party. Uh, but he meets these uh, three older divorced guys who've gotten a beach house, and they're like, we can't figure out. We don't know how. There's so many hotties everywhere on this beach, but we have no idea how to hook this up. And he's like, well, I'll tell you what. I just got kicked out of my place because I'm really kind of a loser uh, in terms of real life shit. Really great at, at uh, chasing tail, though. Yeah. Um, and uh, it says, I will teach you guys how to get women, but you have to basically let me stay here and eat your food and drink your booze and what have you. And that seems like a fair deal with them and, and to pay him as well. And it it's a series of really goofy, not very funny uh, scenes of him trying to teach them the secrets of picking up women and them failing completely at it. Apparently, talking to women is key. Yes. They dialogue. It's a thing. They actually refer to it as, you know, the dialogue. Okay. Here's the one thing about this movie, despite that everything else about this, including the cover, which is wildly misogynistic, but, you know, it was 1984. What are you going to do? Uh that really made me go, wait, what is happening right now? Where there's a scene in the middle of this movie where he stops and starts lecturing some dudes that they don't have any respect for women and they're not allowed to treat women that way. And you can't just grab women. You have to, you have to like you, you have to understand it is up to them whether or not they are interested and want to be with you. Like literally it is a modern day woke discussion in the middle of a 1984 titty movie that I was like, what the fuck is going on? It it does. It, he's not completely wrong. Uh, I'm not saying he's wrong at all. I'm saying like, it's just, what is that doing in a 1984 titty movie called hard bodies? The the, the problem with this is Scotty is this sort of, you know, like, like I said, he's like a McConaughey character, just minus the charisma. He's just, this good-looking buff dude who basically hangs out at the beach and uses his charms to live off of the women whom he respects. Uh, and you're like, you're still kind of a manipulative little shit, but you're you're respectful. And so he trains these guys, and we see that after a while, they start to take it the wrong way, and they're starting to get a little more aggressive. And at some point, you have the like, whoa, dude, that's not cool conversation. And next thing you know, hijinks ensue, and they're trying to market this somehow. It, this is so hard to explain, because there really isn't a plot. No. But such as it is, it's basically... Two of these guys going, yeah, we figured out the key to, like, get these hot women who are half our age to hang out with us and sleep with us. And somehow they take it too far. And then there's, like, a big party and somebody shows up going, hey, we should turn this into, like, a TV show. Well, kind of a cool all-girl band in it, by the way. Though. Yeah. Like, yeah. who are an actual band? Yeah. Uh, um, I can't remember the name of them. Right I can't remember. Diaper Rash. Yeah. I, but, that's their name in the movie. Their, real, their band's real name. But they're like, yeah, we want to do this. We want to celebrate this whole hard bodies movement. And it's like, just apparently that was like a scene just being really hot. It was. And being on the beach. It uh, was. So there was a band that was geared for it. It, this is movie is not good. Look, uh, I, I mean, I will still argue that this is better than a lot of the movies that were of the same ilk at the time. Sure, but it 
doesn't make it's a low it bar seeking out per se. I mean, if this is the thing that you have a lot of nostalgia for, these type of movies, you can do better. I mean, uh, even the movie, what was it, Frat Party? I think was the name of it. Was actually surprisingly funny. Um, obviously, Porky's is the ultimately yeah. the, the, the choice, or Animal House. Animal House you know, being or, the model, yeah, being the ultimate model here. But I mean, yeah, this is a lot of this is really lame. There are a few good jokes in here. Um, it's certainly if you're in it for seeing a lot of really astonishingly hot feathered hair naked 80s chicks this delivers i, I gotta spans. admit i i kind of miss the uh the 80s hot hottie they, they, they were a different breed you know they just looked a little bit different they don't look uh as wafy as some of the women nowadays in movies but okay the one thing i remember about this movie years before i ever actually saw it because like you i was seeing this for the first time Years ago, maybe in the 90s, I was reading some magazine article, and they interviewed – I'm pretty sure it's the same guy. They were interviewing this guy who was a production designer. They were talking to various people in the industry, and this guy was – his credits was Hard Bodies. And so I was like, oh, that's a movie I've heard of. And he's like – when they mentioned that, he's like, well, yeah, you know, that's how you do it. You know, everybody in this business starts off, you make bad movies, and then you make good movies. Sure. And so I'm like – That's still the rule. To me, that was – that's what I think of as when I think of hard bodies, a guy going, yeah, it was a fucking gig, but hey, we got paid and I got to make much better movies because of hard bodies. So one last thing about this movie that is going to surprise you. I have a personal connection to this film. Did you experience your first erection looking at the uh, box cover art? No, no. That came much earlier than hard bodies. Uh, no, actually, one of the stars of this film is a friend. Is that so? Which one? Courtney Gaines, who plays the goofy, red-haired best friend of the main character. Well, I'll be damned. He's best known for playing Malachi in Children of the Corn. Ah, oh, that's the, that's him. But uh, and he doesn't live here, but he come used to come here a lot because one of his closest friends is one of my closest friends, uh, going to Michelle Williams, who used to be on The Real Deal, the public access show with mm. me. So I got to know him pretty well through her, and we've hung out quite a bit. In fact, I got him into a Fantastic Fest party, and he's like, I'll always be grateful. It's like, I'll remember that. And now now you have to have a hard body screening and have him be the special no, guest. No, I'm not. That's not something No, that's no one really happen. wants to do that. I don't want Trust to have a Children of the Corn screening. No, not really. I would rather watch Children of the Corn than watch Hard Bodies again. I'm mixed on that. I don't I know am, if I you would. Know what? I am actually glad we're doing this, even though it's going to be awkwardly cut, I'm sure into the next digital noise because I actually messaged you on Facebook saying, God damn you for making me watch hard bodies for no reason. So now I guess now you have nothing. We have a reason. I still want my $0 back. All right. Big thanks to Marco for coming back again to cover hard bodies. Oh boy. That so when you finished movie. hard bodies one, uh-huh. were there so many threads and unanswered questions that you immediately sought out hard bodies two? No. Okay. I don't even think there's a thread between them. I think it's just, here's the same basic movie again, just with even lesser actors. Are you telling me you didn't want to spend more time immersed in the universe, the the shared universe of the Hard Bodies world? Not the same way and with the same fervent uh, need I sought out Hot Dog the Movie Part 2. Ah. Yeah. I actually don't know if there's a Hot Dog Movie Part 2. There probably is. (laughs) 
What's the Mad Marco and I were talking about this? There was a Mad Magazine one that was like whitewater rafting. It was like I always get that one confused because there's a couple wacky white water rafting ones. Because it was there's I, up the creek, up the creek. That's the Mad and Magazine. There's one. Another one, and I can't remember the name of the other one. But the one has is up the creek. The one with Stephen first, and like yeah, it actually I, has some people from Stephen Animal House. He's in, in like all of these. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that kind of his job? I used to watch that every movies? time it was on cable and have never seen it again. Well, we're going to talk about one real quick that you did not get to see, uh, which is Goosebumps 2 Haunted Halloween. Now, this is kind of baffling to me that this was put out the way it was because Goosebumps 1, despite certainly lowered expectations, even by the studio to some extent, were surprised that they ended up with a pretty solid little family uh, Halloween comedy. And... I even remember as critics, we went, we were surprised they screened it for press and went in, came out and said, I mean, it's not like the greatest thing ever, but it was pretty darn good. I'd watch it again and was actually looking forward to a sequel with Jack Black returning as the author R.L. Stein in the thing whose books have, when opened the original versions of his books that he wrote, when he opens, they come to the characters from the come out and then they've got to chase them all down. So it's like, oh, Jack Black's returning is another film of this. Uh, sure. And then it just never came, seemed to come out in theaters. As far as I know, I'm not even sure if it came out in theaters at all, but it certainly came out on Blu-ray and 4K. It got, it got, it got eclipsed by a uh, house with a clock in its walls. Oh, well, I can see that. The advertising made them look nearly identical because it was that sort of frantic kids gothic horror with Jack Black in the center. They came out with like, within like a week or two of each other. Well, the house with the clock in its walls was considerably better than this. I've often heard that Goosebumps 2 is the hard bodies 2 of Goosebumps movies. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, it's not even that this is terrible cause it's not, I mean, this is exactly the level I expected the first Goosebumps movie to be at. It just was better than that. Um, so I, I think that like if people were fans of the original Goosebumps, like a big fans, and especially if they're still younger and still more connected to that sort of like, haven't really gone back and dissuaded themselves from the nostalgia of youth phenomenon, then, I think you might actually still really like this because this isn't a bad movie. I didn't even dislike it. I was just like, yeah, this isn't for me. Uh, the story is these two young boys who are good friends and they're both kind of picked on by bullies in their town. And they've got inexplicably a job uh, where they go to clean up junk and all they have is like a, a tiny little kid's wagon to pull it with. I'm like, uh, what? Uh, so they get a call and it's this old creaky mansion. They're like, just clean it out. Get rid of anything. Keep whatever you, whatever you want. And they find a secret passage through the fireplace and in it they find a book and oh, guess what? It's one of R.L. Stein's books. And as it turns out, it was his first book he never published called Haunted Halloween, which I guess features Slappy, the, the famous, the, the most iconic Goosebumps character, Slappy the dummy, the ventriloquist dummy, who I, I don't really know, but I guess was in a couple different things on there. Um, and, uh, so he comes out of the book and at first he's like, the chick from Weird Science. He's well without the boobs. He's like, um, what do you want? I want to help. I want to be your friend. Here, I'll make you pass your grades. Here, I'll help you with your science project with magic. And they're like, this is great. A little weird, but odd. And there's an older sister as well who gets clued into what's going on relatively early by just stumbling into it. And they're, of course, a single mom who who's having trouble making ends meet and keeping everything together. But shortly, Slappy, of course, goes, you know, turns evil. Or he was always evil. He just more overtly evil. And they must all team together to stop him. 
And there's people in this, like uh, 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 Chris Parnell plays sort of a sort of kind of love interest for the mom. Ken Jeong is the neighbor who's obsessed with Halloween and has built this super elaborate house uh, with how you know a super elaborate Halloween display in his house. And then Jack Black does eventually <laughs> appear. I'm not even kidding here. So there's he's in it, and they show him his house. Like, oh god, no! There's another thing. It's happened. And then the next time you see him is really him driving up. After it's all over and going, hey, I'm here. I'm here to help. They're like, yeah, we fixed it. And he's like, oh, okay, see ya. <laughs> You're like, what the fuck? That took like a, a half hour of Jack Black's time. It's very odd that they even con- in- included him because this kind of makes it feel like there's not room now for an official sequel to the theatrical film, which kind of deserved a better sequel. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it reduces the brand in some ways, but once again, not terrible. There's actually some cool ideas in there. There's a, one of the things that Ken Jong has built around his house is this giant, uh, like spider that is like over literally over his house, but it's entirely made of balloons. And it's like, well, that's actually pretty fucking cool. And all the Halloween decorations town come to life, including that. And with things that would happen with a giant balloon spider that are, that are kind of fun. Uh, there's definitely even a few laughs here, but yeah, not up to the level of something like, well, I mean, even the first one, like I said, not that great, but like not up to the level of that. There are a ton of bonus features on this though. They went all out to make this like something where people would want to buy it and rewatch it, including a whole things with Slappy the Dummy teaches, teaches the kids about science where it's a bunch of goofy bits with the, the ventriloquist dummy going, here's how science works, kids. <laughs> with the actors from the film and it's real science. And there's a bunch of bits like that. And there's like gag reel and deleted scenes and making ofs. And wow, it's crazy that all that is there. But Oh, well, let's go on to the rest of the films for today, which you have seen and start with, like I said, the top, uh, like tonally, we're all over the place this show. So let's just get into it. Arrow's re-release of the 1974 American exploitation film, Willie Dynamite, that right off the bat, I was like, oh, my God, that's Gordon from Sesame Street. <laughs> yeah, he's really young. Yeah, I mean... I grew up watching Sesame Street with this guy in it, and who wasn't. It was about the same age at the time. Yeah. And I just, it was such a bizarro disconnect watching this movie for me, for him playing this total pimp of a character who, by the way, arguably the best pimp outfits in any black exploitation movie. Oh, the costumes ever. are great. The costuming in this is like, is, I mean, startling. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's an interesting movie, and it tries to kind of have it. Both ways. I mean, this is a major studio release, and you're talking about coming in on a wave of stuff that was mostly released by American International Pictures and things like that. So, this being a studio release, it has a, a, a lot more morality than I think you would think a movie named after a pimp would have. <laughs> because the real story of it is basically about this social worker who starts to plant seeds of dissent in the life of this pimp and his his harem or entourage of hoes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> basically she starts to plant little thoughts of, Hey, there's a better life out there. And no matter how trapped you feel, you could live it in a very, she does it in a very street tough way. I mean, I said it in more of a namby pamby hippie way, but right. she does it in a very street tough, tough love kind of way. Um, to try to turn around the lives of these specific people, 
Um, there's not a really strong connection made as to why these specific people. I mean, they do cross her paths because one of the young girls that's part of his group gets arrested and she has to assist the young girls. That's how she kind of learns to, uh, learns about Lily Dynamite. Um, but it tries to sort of glamorize the pimp lifestyle while at the same time sermonizing about the pimp lifestyle. It's a movie sort of at odds with itself. Yeah. Um, it never really finds its tone of, how to make that work. Yeah. And I think it certainly, to some degree, the demonizing it feels like it's, it feels like a reluctant part of the story. And it's odd because he's a very unpleasant fellow. Mm-hmm. I mean, he beats his girls and he's, he's a terrible dude. Right. But like, and even the social worker is like, I don't really give a shit about this guy. I give a shit about the girls. I'm trying to save the girls. And I feel like when it gets towards the end and he has his sort of like woke, slight half-assed wokeness, it's not earned at all. It's just kind of like, oh, well, I guess we had to do this. It felt like for studio, someone at the studio said, this needs to happen. Yeah. Um, but there's no question that, I mean, this has a lot of fun action, a lot of really solid music in it. Um, and like I said, the costumes and the sets, they're just so gloriously 70s to the nth degree. I mean, it's fun to watch for that. It's fun to watch for Gordon from Sesame Street mm. being all pimped up. I, I enjoyed this. I'm not the world's biggest black exploitation guy. And this one's not particularly, ex- this one is, is rather reserved in, re- mm-hmm. in regards to feeling exploitative mm-hmm. or, or even like of the time cheesy. I mean, it feels of the time. But there's such an earnestness to the drama in it that it kind of removes any, like, schlock factor that would normally come with something like this. I mean, I I, I still feel like the schlock factor is there, but certainly not to the same degree right. as some of the most famous ones, you know. And, and maybe in some ways this kind of hurts this with the time. It's like, not really sure that this was a genre that needed a film that was going to take itself quite this seriously at this point. Mm. <laughs> and didn't do it really successfully. Yeah, because you can't either. have it both ways. Yeah, and, and you, you they, this certainly didn't actually work with having it both ways. But I do think that this is a film a lot of people who do like black exploitation films have not seen. Yeah. And I think it's also not a terrible starter black exploitation film either for people who've never really seen any. And you're like, well, what are the good ones? It's like, well, obviously, you know, some of them shaft and what have you, but this is actually one that's kind of might ease you into a bit. And, and, uh, and there's a lot of entertainment to be had regardless in it. Yeah. Um, and it, this is Arrow, which doesn't fuck around with their releases. They, they're the criterion of, of, of weird genre films, for sure. However, this one rare, for a rare thing for Arrow, all it has is a, uh, audio commentary track, uh, by Sergio Mims, who comes and just talks about, gets really into detail about everything about the movie, so people who are fans of the film will enjoy it, but it's weird that an Arrow release it, that's the only thing here other than the original theatrical trailer. Kind of surprised. Uh, let's move on to our next title, which is Let the Corpses Tan. I saw this weird fucking movie at Fantastic Fest, and I was in the exact right state of mind to watch this movie. Yeah. I was at that point where I was like maybe three beers in. I was like, it was still early in the day, so I was wide awake. Uh, yeah, it's Fantastic Fest. Give me a break, people. It's like when you go camping, you're allowed to drink before noon. Um, and... I was like, I have no idea what this is going to be, but someone said the word giallo, and that's the thing for me, so I'm in. And I remember I just loved the shit out of it. 
I rewatched this film directed by Helene Catet uh, and Bruno Forzani, who previously did two other fantastic fest releases, Amer and The Strange Color of Your Body's Tears. Movies, two movies as well. I both enjoyed, but much like this one, I'm like, man, these are the most festival films ever. In other words, films that are so great to see in a theater with a really excited audience that's like one of the first times anyone's ever seen it. Not sure it holds up as well on home release and sitting and rewatching it. Uh, 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 odd, an odd, very odd tribute to obscure genre, really obscure genre stuff that has amped up all the levels of that stuff to the point of absurdity almost. And th- for this, it's kind of a mixture of the Italian Polizzi films and the Italian Giallo films combined with even a little bit of Jodorowsky. Maybe even a lot of Jodorowsky in there, and it's surrealism. But uh, I get the feeling, you told me before we started, I think you might be surprised by the movie in which I actually hated the most in the set. And I'm going to guess it was this one. Um, It actually wasn't what I was going to bring up, but in terms of movies, uh, yes, it, it... it was. It's this is a definitely a film that I could easily see someone hating. I I had a real problem with it. It got I got real tired of this movie pretty quick. Um, my problem with it is that you know the things that Tarantino gets accused of, the sort of like oh he just borrows from other movies. He's not he's not a real filmmaker. I'm like he his he wears his influences on his sleeves, but his influences are are to me mashed up in such a way where he's still creating, you know, original pieces of work. This, to me, felt like art imitating art. Like, oh, there are movies that have certain a certain style and look and feel, uh, and so we're going to take all of that and then hammer it, you know, for two hours or an hour and a half or however long the movie is. Uh, um, 92 minutes, believe it or not. Yeah, it which felt... Is- it felt longer. It, do- it does, um, and I and this is from someone who still genuinely does enjoy this film. But it definitely, it definitely drags and feels longer than it's ninety two minutes. And I don't think that it did offer up anything new outside of an exercise in style, like an exercise in how closely can we replicate our influences. The answer from the start is very, very closely. Mm-hmm. So you've now answered that. Are you going to give me anything else? Yeah, I didn't you, feel like the movie. I don't. I don't feel like the movie gave me anything else. You'll watch this and you'll be startled that this was not made in like 1978. Yeah, because it come in every way, shape, and feel uh, form feels like this is a film from the 70s. Which I mean, there's certainly other people who've tried that sort of thing to to more or less success. I feel like for me, the thing that makes this work is the fact they infused that Pulitzer Giallo thing with so much Jodorowsky-esque surrealism, that which is not something that ever came into that giallo field. I mean, the closest we ever got was Suspiria, which I would not compare to Jodorowsky at all. But this totally has that sort of, like, everything is a metaphor for sex on some level, dream vision sequences that are just insane but gaudy craziness. Um, this is a movie I actually really admire visually, but Storyline wise, which is basically a bunch of criminals hold up at a, a artist's compound in the mountains who eventually ha- get into a big gunfight with each other and the police. Uh, that's about it for the plot. Yeah. <laughs> that's about all there is. Um, is there's not much there and it even is a little confusing, partially thanks to the, the surrealism of it. I, I genuinely, this is the movie that like I'd be like, 
if I was still in a party, I would put it in the Blu-ray player just to have on the background while music was playing. It would be like a, a first choice for background stuff because people would go, wow, what the hell is this? I think most people – and most people would assume it is old. I don't think anybody would be able to peg it. Yeah. No, of course not. Um, it's a movie that's best watched in sequences. Like you go, I'm going to watch this for a half hour then I'm going to go do something else. For a couple hours, and I might come back and watch more of it. I don't think this is the film that's easy to sit down and watch all the way through, even though it's a short 92 minutes. But I did find it, like I said, so incredibly visually engaging that that uh, this is the film I'm going to keep. And I will actually come back to at some point. I just know enough now to go, don't watch it all at once. I thought I would like it much more than I actually did. Uh I also weirdly had um, read a description of it that made it sound like more of a horror film than it was. Really. I don't know if that's because of the title, but... Um, I mean, there's a certain amount of gore in it, to be sure, but n- none of it is really... It's not really about the gore here. Yeah. I mean, they're very... It's more peck and paw than it is horror, you know? Yeah. I, I, mean, it, I think it was from somebody looking for a way to describe it, um, and maybe not having the 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 real context or vocabulary to be able to describe it. Cause I'm pretty sure that when this played fantastic fest, I had somebody describe it as, Oh, it's like a horror Western crime mashup. And it's sort of, it's a crime movie. Um, yeah. And you know, and I guess, you know, it's Western in that it's sunny outside and people are sweaty, but it's not really like a Western. Yeah. There's a certain, you're right. There's a certain degree stylistically of the spaghetti Western yeah. stuff. It's certainly with that, like very familiar sh- close in shots on people's eyes as they look around during gunfights yeah. and stuff. And just the very nature of like the last third of this movie is pretty much just one long gunfight. Um, but doesn't feel feel like a Western in any other way other than some of those stylistic choices. Um, certainly, I don't get the horror movie thing. I don't know why anybody would even say that. But um, uh, there's only one extra here. It's a uh, film critic, Alexander Heller Nicholas, and and a film direct, festival director, John Edmond, who runs the Queensland Film Festival, who apparently been friends for a long time. And they got together here, who were both big fans of this movie, to talk about all of this. Who are two people who know a lot about all the influences of this movie. And discuss the oh look this is where this is clearly from and what this is influenced by so if you one of those people you love i I feel like if you love those genres this is kind of a must-see movie for you if you're like oh god i totally i watch the shit out of those yes you have to see this um but if not i feel you might find this kind of boring uh let's get on to our next film once again tonally switching completely in a different direction to the 1997 Blu-ray re-release or not re-release on Blu-ray but re-release of the film period uh of Bent which is originally a 1979 theatrical play which uh apparently Richard Gere played the lead in on stage. Yeah, he played it at one point. Uh Ian McKellen originated the role that uh that, uh, Mick Jagger? No, that uh, Clive Owen plays. Clive Owen. Oh, okay. Uh, in the first, in the very first production of it, uh, yeah, Ian McKellen played the. I can't remember the character's name. Max. Uh, yes. Or, yeah. Uh, so this is was at least the play, and then to some degree the movie was very lauded when it came out because up until this point there really hadn't been any narrative explorations of people other than the Jews who were exploited and, 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 uh, uh, murdered by the Nazis during the Holocaust, uh, during world war two. And this was one of the first major productions about like, yes, I mean, homosexuals were obvious. I mean, it's well known, but nobody talks about it, you know? Um, 
and this is about that aspect where Max Clive Owen here in this filmed version of it, he is a very promiscuous gay man in 1930s Berlin, uh, but he has a very wealthy family who he doesn't get along with because of his very out and proudness. Uh, they hang out in a almost looking post-apocalyptic gay club. It's like a bombed out, it's like a bombed out warehouse. It's like yeah. A, yeah. Bombed out warehouse that's crossed with a, with a, um, the carnival from Sana Sangre <laughs> and like, I, I don't know. It's, it's a weird and very engaging opening first act. I thought where we're like, wow, what is this movie going to be about? With like, there's like, I mean like trapeze acts going on and like people yeah. having sex in the corners and every type of weird fetish and kink going on. You can imagine. And, uh, he, Comes there, he's, he's, he has a boyfriend who seems to be like younger than him and certainly of a very different type, a more introverted type who's regularly uncomfortable with his flirtation with other people, including him bringing home a guy played by, oh my god, it's Nikolaj Coster Waldo, plays, uh, uh, what's his name from, uh, Game of Thrones, um, he's like one of the biggest characters in Game of Thrones. Never seen, never seen the show. You've never seen, Game of Thrones? I can't answer who he is on Game of Thrones. Then why haven't you watched Game of Thrones? Because there's just, you know, there's only so many hours in a day. Yeah, it's like top five. Well, I was watching Who's Harry Crumb. <laughs> so you're going to put this off on me, are you? Uh, he plays Jamie Lannister. He's one of the major characters on that show and became quite famous from playing that role to those of us who bothered to spend time with it. Um, wink. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very brief appearance in this, along with other uh, big actors. It's but crazy. It is- there's so there's there's a scene where I see a prostitute, and I'm like, oh, she looks like Rachel Vice. It is Rachel Vice, and then Jude Law. So you have all these Jude Law is like, that are a, like extras, a, a lineless Gestapo officer. Extras. Yeah, uh, but. When he brings him home, it turns out it's Crystal Knocked, the Night of the Long Knives. I said that right, right? It's Crystal Knocked. Uh, like you're like, yeah, I'm a German expert. Come on, fuck you. Yeah, it's, I was, <laughs> that's what I was doing while you were watching HBO. I was fucking learning German language. <laughs> I was educating myself. Uh, like Crystal Knocked. And so everything changed in Berlin, yeah. and they're like, we got to escape. We got to get out of here. Uh, Ian McKellen does have an appearance as Max's uncle, who's like, I've got new papers, but you got to get out of here. Who says, I can't leave my boyfriend behind. But they're found and arrested by the Gestapo, put in a train for Dachau. And I'm not going to tell you what happens after that in case you want to see this, but it definitely changes into more of a sort of like concentration camp type movie, uh, surviving in the concentration camp as, uh, with a new character played by Lothair Bluteau, uh, comes in, um, uh, as, as sort of another love interest for Max. Uh, Paul Bettany is in this as well. <laughs> Just like Mick Jagger plays like this sort of, uh, I forget the term. It's like Dom Fantastic or something where it's like, you know, the the female obvious ruler of a fabulous Studio 54-esque type location yeah. uh, who who is dresses in drag. Mick Jagger dressing in drag singing from a trapeze is a thing that is worth seeing this movie for alone, I would suspect. But I think one of the problems is, and certainly even at the time when this came out, people were very critical of it. It never makes the jump successfully from a theatrical experience to a film. You never don't feel like you're watching an awkwardly shot theatrical performance moved onto film. It just doesn't quite work. And it's a shame because you really, I was really rooting for this the whole time because there's more than enough interesting things going on here for you to, for this to, to work. I mean, maybe it's like, I, I don't know. I mean, I've certainly seen, I think we've all seen plenty of things where that, theater 
that production that everybody loves. Just whoever did the film version, they, they fucked it up. Rent is apparently a very good example. Never I, having seen the theater version, but the movie sucks. <laughs> I think the raw power of the source material comes through this movie, but I don't think it's the movie. I don't think the movie has any power on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, the, it, it all is from the source. Everything that is everything that is going to be affecting from this movie is, is going to be things that were already affecting in the source material without the movie able to enhance those in any way whatsoever. So it is very stagey. There are moments that you can see in your mind's eye that are very much like, oh, this I can see how this would have been like a moment in a play. Um, that said, it is such it is such a um, it is it is such a different piece of queer cinema than maybe I've ever seen. It ha- it does have a very nineties low budget art house feel. In a way, I find, and we've talked about this when we did, um, what was the vampire movie, uh, The Addiction? When we talked about The Addiction, there's something about low-budget 90s art house stuff. I'm not quite sure. I can't put my finger on it. It makes me, it feels like a warm blanket. It's very nostalgic to me. It reminds me of the time when I was like a huge, I mean, now I'm a movie nerd. I feel like back then I was like a cinephile. Like I was like, feed me, feed me, feed me, feed me. Sure. And like rent everything, keep my ear to the ground on like what foreign releases were hot, what indie release, like independent film, like completely. Into yeah, you're, you're great friends with everyone who works at your local video yeah, store. In a completely <laughs> different way than I absorb media now. Sure. I was so hungry to expand my horizons in my 20 in my late teens and 20s which was the 90s for me and there's something about the feel of those movies that I find like oddly comforting in a weird way so even though I'm like man I can tell this has like no budget to it and it has like feels very it feels very stagey there's something still that I found like affecting by it um I I ended up (sighs) my immediate response to this movie was this has stayed with me a little bit. I've probably thought more about Bent than I have any of the other things in the stack. Mm-hmm. I really like to see somebody remake it. Yeah, I, that I agree with. I think I think you could take the same story and a lot of the same moments even and make it a more cinematic experience. Um, it is it is very much a filmed version of a play. I do think it's worth watching. I think it's of interest. I think if you have any interest in independent cinema from the nineties, this is definitely one that is interesting simply for the fact that, like we said, the cast is incredible, and it's right before all these people became famous. Yeah. And somehow, I don't know if it's because it is a quote-unquote piece of queer cinema, especially it being NC-17 at the time, which also would have affected the amount of eyeballs that could get on the film. Um, it feels underseen. It feels like a film that... I never heard of yeah, this it before. Feel, this. And neither had I. Yeah. And it feels like a film that, that you would have heard about, because it does star people that you know... Because the raw power of the central story is so captivating, and the fact that it does work almost in spite of itself, um, it does feel like something that, that I think more people should seek out. That said, like, I agree with you. I think it's real rough around the edges and all that stuff. I think it's but the big, biggest problem is that cinematically they don't stick the landing. No. The landing just feels... Well, I guess this is what we got to do now. It feels very sort of like ho-hum in a way, and we're supposed to have a much more emotional reaction. Cinematography-wise, there's no art going on there yeah, at things, all. Little things like little cheap, little cheap workarounds like we don't have a concentration camp set, so but we found this like 
factory. Yeah. So we're going to shoot all the concentration stuff camp, uh, concentration camp stuff at this factory. But it's very clearly like a factory. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like I, you never really buy it as like a concentration camp, right. especially because you don't see anybody else as well. There's a lot of little things like that that feel like budgetary constraints that affect the overall power of it as a movie. It's weird to bring up budget in that regard, but it. it but I think as well. I mean, I think more than anything, it's not even that that bothers me so much as. I don't think the director manages to pull off the emotional translation of this character who's a shit heel and he's supposed to be and that idea of where we where he ends up at I just couldn't buy it. I was like I don't see this and I think he, it's because you don't need to you don't you have no idea how to tell me things with your camera. If right. it's not in the dialogue you don't know how to do it. And I think yeah. that's the problem. A much better director would have found a way to do it to sell yeah. this to you. And and at the end I was like this is a a thing I would totally go see on stage. I would be excited as you said for someone to remake this, like someone really good to step in and go, "Yeah, we're going to do a new version of this with a proper budget." But as it is, this is just okay. I mean, it's, it's certainly worth seeing, if, especially if you are a fan of queer cinema. Uh, and um, this was a, a thing that was, at least in the underground, considered quite a big deal when it came out. But it certainly never made the translation to the rest of us. Uh, and then we're moving on to The Great Battle, which is a South Korean, I say historical action film, like most Asian uh Middle Ages action films. It's but loosely based on what actually happened, incorporating lots of tropes of modern day cinema from these type of movies into it. But it is actually significantly closer to the actual events than a lot of these. <laughs> Maybe yeah. not Red Cliffs by John Woo, but uh, this is uh, directed by Kim Kwang Sik. Uh, starring a bunch of people who formerly were pop stars, as in almost every film that's coming out of Korea or Japan right now. But I gotta say, this movie, which is basically a siege film of a giant fortress uh, dealing with an impossible army and finding ways to defend against it, I found extremely entertaining. The- it is really entertaining. I, I have, I have but one wish for this film. Um, I just wish it was a little shorter. It's 136 minutes. That's gets, pretty long. And it gets re- it gets a little repetitive as well. And it's sort of like, uh, you can't have every single one of the battle scenes be like a huge showstopper. Like, like it, it, it takes some of the power of them away when you see so many back to back to back. I, I will say, I think the most interesting thing about this as those huge battle scenes is whereas most films of this type lately have leaned so heavily on CG, this wants it to seem much more sort of Sam Peckinpah, slow motion like using real prop, using real uh, physical effects instead of like CG stuff and I was actually very impressed by that. I love the way they shot the action in this and some of the conception of the way it's set up. It's the most impressive thing in the film, I think. And it was very blockbustery. It had a lot of moments of like humor and well-drawn characters and things like that that mm-hmm. were that felt very much in the style of a Western Hollywood blockbuster. Um, you know, so it wasn't dry or, or too historical even. It was just a little, it was just a like a touch too long. Like shave a good 20, 30 minutes off and you have like an a phenomenal movie but it's a good movie and part of the problem which would have been a problem if they hadn't found a way to put some degree of like a secondary plot in there but 
it takes up so much of the screen time is that the main character is a guy who works for the emperor. He's the most loyal young soldier who wants to prove himself, who uh, is given the task of infiltrating this fort where, which is in theory an ally, but because they never showed up when they were called upon by the emperor to fight in this battle, which the emperor soundly lost against their enemies uh, in a way they never ever could have won. He sent there to basically uh, find a way to assassinate the, the very charismatic leader of said uh, fort. And once he gets there, which is with the, where he's originally from as a child. So he has a certain amount of nostalgia for the whole thing. Anyway, he starts finding literally there's not a bad thing to say about this guy. He is like like the Mary Sue of of South Korean medieval times uh, military commander guys. He, yeah. He's kind of perfect. Everybody loves him. He's just at his worst. He has a bit of problem because his daughter is it finds out his dating kind of is like his number one, but his only problem is because he's pretty sure that at least one of them is going to die in the upcoming com- conflict and he doesn't want them to suffer. So even then you're like, oh, you're perfect. <laughs> uh, but the storyline with the young guy, you find more and more as it goes along as the infiltrator. I don't care about this guy. I don't care about him at all. <laughs> I just want to see all the cool shit that's going on with these battles. And part of the reason it's as long as it is is because of a very long sequence before we even get to the fort with them. And the sequences throughout it with him expressing, I'm, I'm doubtful. I don't know. Is this the right thing? I found it less and less I gave a shit. Well, I think the movie, I think, I think that's in the movie itself in regards to how it's structured. Because I think you could have gotten more tension out of the, are they going to find out what I'm really here for? But... The guy that's running the fort, uh, that that general or leader or whatever his title is, um, he sort of, like, knows right away with, like, a wink as far as, like, no, I know why you're here, but I'm going to let you hang out so you can see what our daily life is like and what it's like to be on the other side of this wall. Right. And I, I don't know that the movie couldn't have gotten more tension out of... Um, letting that mystery play out a little bit longer and letting the audience get to know this guy and go like, Oh, you can't kill this guy. He's perfect. But, but that's that, that flame is extinguished. Like so quick. It's Mm -hmm. basically right after he arrives. It's like he, he, he pegs him right away and is just like, no, but, Hold, hold on and see, like watch us. So the film kind of gives you no doubt early on that this guy is going to clearly go, okay, I, I clearly threw in with the wrong crowd. I, I I'm on this guy's side now, but and wants to play as if we still don't know. We know. And it yeah. would have been more interesting if there had been more doubt created, but you know, it's one of those movies that I think and to some degree, it's very helped by the things that aren't historical as well. Like, yes, this has the team of super badass female kick-ass chicks who come in and like are like can do somersaults and shit, and the dudes who all have their super weapon specialty that they can do that's super cool to watch. But it doesn't quite get to the level of wuxia films where yeah. it's just totally absurd and people can fly and stuff. Or um, it's they really take pains to try and make it look like this is at least mildly plausible. And weirdly enough, I mean, the actual story of this eighty-eight day siege. Uh, 500,000 invaders against, like, what, like 2,000? And the 2,000 guys won is true. <laughs> so yeah. that's kind of cool knowing that just going into it. It puts it in the neighborhood of something like the movie Troy, mm-hmm. where it's like it's not fantasy, but it's not necessarily historically accurate either, but it lands somewhere around, like, it's sort of an action film that is set in a historical epic setting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, 
I don't have a problem with that. It's more and more. I'm, there's this trend going on with people of like, if it's not dead on historically what really happened, we hate it. And I'm like, you're going to see a theatrical film or a biopic or, or a, a, dare I say it, movie about a band. Why do you, why are you so excited? Everything is on Wikipedia. Just look it up. If you need to know the real story, I kind of like watching a movie that just wants to show me a good movie. Yeah. I'm, I'm less, especially when it's about people who lived a thousand years ago. <laughs> I'm like, really? Are we going to hold out? Cause we're like, Oh no, come on, man. Like there's, there was no group of female warriors doing that. Okay. I, I read some critics complaining though, saying like, this upsets us that this wasn't more accurate to what we actually know about this. Okay. Mm. Let it go. There is uh, actually a three-minute production commentary on here, EPK, with interviews, behind-the-scenes footage, but a four-minute about the characters, and that's about it, uh, which is more than you actually expect with this sort of thing, usually. Uh, the last thing we're going to talk about, that I say this for last, because honestly, I you saying I would not watched any of this, I was like, I have no idea how John is going to react to Castle Rock Season oh, 1. Um, I have extremely mixed feelings about this season. Out of everything that we've talked about on this show, this was the one that felt like work. Yes. This felt like work. Every time I had to watch one of these episodes, okay, there'd be the occasional episode I was like, oh, that was really good. I want to watch the next one. And then it would very quickly feel it like work. It was very difficult for me to push through. This is a, uh, was on Hulu. It was their most successful uh, season of a show ever, but that's because, come on, it's a, a season based on a, a amalgam of all of Stephen King's various different influences and stories as a brand new story, which I would be more impressed with if they had actually gotten Stephen King to come in and, con and write the damn thing. It's just sort of like a mishmash of like maybe some names you've heard before, or, like, last names or places you've heard before and sort of this, like... References to previous stories. Because yeah. it's not even, like... Like, at first it was like, ooh, they're creating something new, which is an idea. What if these things were happening around the same time and started... Inter what if Cujo was interacting with the dead zone and these things were all... Yeah. Which, to some level in the books, that was happening, but it was more insinuated. It was like, whoa, what if they did a very overt version of that? That's not this. This is like 20 years later after all those things happened in Castle Rock and people just kind of know them from myth and, like, you know, urban legend almost. You're like, oh... Yeah, this was not some grand shared shared universe thing, which is almost kind of what it was sold as. I also yes. thought that, strangely, it didn't feel that much like Stephen King. No. Well, that, like I said, the biggest problem is it felt like you could – it you really felt the absence of Stephen King on the writing side. Nothing in here dialogue-wise or – Anyway, it felt like something Stephen King would have written. Yeah. It just uh, – the King has such a distinct style – that many have criticized him for because it's certainly something he is unmistakable, uh, but of writing characters and the way they talk to each other. And that's just not here. Like I never felt like I was watching something by Stephen King watching this. And I feel like that's maybe its biggest stumbling block, but I want to hear you describe the plot of this thing. Can you describe to our viewers shortly? What, what is this uh, first Standalone there's, there's, anthology season. So about. there's one. There's something that kicks off the show, and then there's a there's a larger thread that is really what the show's about. But you don't get the feeling from the first episode that this is what the show's about. So the the first episode kicks off with a very intriguing mystery, 
And again, I think it complicates things because you have the actor play, who played it, who played Pennywise, um, uh, Bill Skarsgård, Bill Skarsgård playing this person who shows up in the in Shawshank Prison. Yeah, the bowels uh, of Shawshank out of nowhere, um, and and so you, I think it really seems like the show is going to be sort of about that as kind of like the central mystery. Really, it's about the other thing that happens in the first episode, which is this guy that used to live in Castle Rock returns home. Yeah, and played by Andre the, Holland. Yeah, and most of the episodes are centered around uh, him and uh, putting pieces together of his past and making sense of hallucinations and mysterious characters that come in and out of the scene. It's almost it's, it's almost like someone trying to transpose... Stephen King onto like a Twin Peaks kind of a template, like forcing it down onto that, and the two don't really go together. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, and, and like, okay, so I kept thinking the the Bill Skarsgård character completely feels like they're trying to take elements of like, like some in some way the the purest German idea of the the bad guy from Needful Things. And, like, incorporate that into here, but as, like, a younger guy who's slowly remembering that he's this guy. And everyone is kind of like, why are you still here? The whole show, like, he shows up every once in a while. You're like, wait, are we supposed to... Is, oh, that was part of the plot, too. Yeah, okay, well, he's, I guess, our big... Um, uh, he's, he's a character MacGuffin, <laughs> almost. You just couldn't care less about him through most of it. And the show wants to give him this Twin Peaksy, like, ooh, he's the big creepy yeah. mystery guy. And it, you want to spend more time with characters like the always great Scott Glenn and Sissy Spacex, Scott Glenn playing very familiar to Stephen King fan, uh, Alan Pangborn. Uh, I'm sorry, Pangborn, the former sheriff of, uh, of Castle Rock, who's appeared in quite a few Stephen King stories, who is in a, a, uh, Relationship with Sissy Spacek of sorts, who uh, plays the character we're talking about before, Andre Holland, the character comes back to town, his adoptive mother, who now is suffering from early onset dementia. Those characters are much more interesting, but it spends so much time barely sort of just twiddling with them that when the show towards the end decides, oh, no, 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 we're getting really into this, I found that I just had no emotional connection to it at all. It's it's two things that Stephen King's work is not. It's it's Mm self-serious and it's pretentious. Yeah. It's very pretentious. And his work is not either of those things. And I've found it a difficult watch. And and I was looking forward to it. I, Mm -hmm. I honestly thought I would like it a lot more. And... It was into the second episode before I was like, this is going to be tough to get all the way through. I was the same way. I actually like was interested in the first episode. It's like, okay, this is an okay opening. We'll see where this goes. I kind of expected more of a bang, but let's see. We watched this originally. Like We saw the first four episodes like about a month before they actually came out for the site, and we're like, wow, that was really kind of dull for four episodes into a single season like plot. Because this is an anthology show, the next season will be totally different set oh, of characters. Well, that's uh, yeah, that's good to hear, right? You're like, yeah. oh, well, maybe they'll get a different director yeah. too and writer because that, that I would ask for no, more. I than didn't anything. know they were going to do the that sort of American Horror Story Channel Zero type thing. Yeah, which I suspect at some point there'll be crossover characters and what have you. Yeah. But like, yeah, this is. I just had like there's an episode a lot of critics have been praising with Sissy Spacek that's kind of from her viewpoint where she's kind of a time displacement episode and it's the most. Boy, we liked this new season of Twin Peaks episode, and it 
never really worked for me at all. I was like, what did you guys actually like about this? Because I, I watch a lot of surreal and abstract things and experimental things, and I found that episode to be quite the failure. It didn't really make sense. It was hard and almost impossible to track. It was just felt like, like you said, kind of pretentious yeah. without ever really having thought out how to do this kind of episode. And I'm kind of baffled so many critics gave it so much praise. I don't think this show is terrible. It's got some great performances in it and it's got some good ideas in it. But the whoever the, the showrunner, Sam Shaw and Dustin Th- Thomason, Maybe you guys should step down and let somebody else step in because you guys have the completely wrong idea of what a this type of show about Stephen King stories should be like, which is to say to feel absolutely nothing like Stephen King. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I just wasn't really a fan and I was very disappointed. This was one of my most anticipated shows of the year. And I found myself consistently let down by it. It is available on 4K if you're one of the people who disagrees with me. And I know there are those out there who do. And fair enough. That uh, comes with 10 brief inside the episode segments uh, discussed by the creators. And then there's two featurettes that go into the script's themes. uh, Blood on the Page and A Clockwork of Horror merging the styles of Stephen King and J.J. Abrams, which... Uh, really, once you wrote that sentence, didn't you go, that sounds like a terrible idea? I don't think I realized it was a J.J. Abrams <laughs> he, He's joint. W- executive producer, yeah. and with television more and more, that means he wrote the check. It definitely has, uh, yeah, it definitely has, if, uh, if Stephen King and J.J. Abrams are the seasoning on this Cake, then uh, <laughs> you put seasoning on a cake. What, where's I my metaphor kind of, going? Yeah. You know what's great on cake? Onion seasoning. salt. <laughs> um, Maybe I a little would, time. I would say that I taste far more J.J. Uh, Abrams on my lips than Stephen But King. even then, J.J. Abrams is usually so goddamn populist, and I don't... Sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. I don't... This whole thing... I mean, I hate the word pretentious as related to art because 99% of the time it just means I didn't get it, so it's pretentious. But this really was kind of like I was watching this thing like a hawk the whole way through. I was on its side. And at the end, I was like, you guys don't really understand all the art stuff you're trying to take from, do you? Which is the very definition of pretentious. Yeah. Um I, it didn't feel Abramsy either. <laughs> I, was, I would have loved for this to feel more Abramsy. It did not. Well, I, <laughs> only in that it was. Uh, it, it tried to have surprises and was unsatisfying. That's yeah, how I find fair enough. Abramsy. Fair enough. I find that more uh, uh, inherent in his movies that he's been closer attached to than in his television shows. I've always thought he was one of those guys. I kind of wish I'd stuck the TV. But uh, that. Uh, but you know, hey, it is what it is. I would love to hear from you guys. I would love to have you guys argue with us about this or any of the other movies that we talked about this in the comments. Always like to hear from our fans. Please don't forget, use the links, click the links on the page that are actually on oneofus.net with the images of these movies to go and buy them if you're going to, or to, in fact, if you start from any of those links, you're going to buy anything off Amazon. You start from one of our links, we get a kickback. That's super helpful. That helps the site. Think about doing that. But in the meantime, I'm Chris. This is John. This has been Digital Noise, and we'd like to thank you for listening.